Wesley and Buttercup ever get to be together? Will the force be balanced? Will Harry defeat he who must not be named? It's these questions, this tension that keeps us reading, that keeps us listening, that keeps us watching. It's the tension. We love it in a story, but we hate it in our lives. But there's only tension in stories because art is imitating life. We have tension all over. And not just individually, but in our families. And in our, our extended families, in our church, in our organizations, in the world, through the history of humanity. Ever since Adam and Eve fell in the garden, there has been tension throughout this world. You see, there's a, there's a, a, a chasm, a great cavernous chasm that cannot be bridged, it seems, between what we have and what we want. Between what we have now and what we need, there seems to be some kind of obstacle or hindrance that's around every corner. And more than that, between what is and what ought to be, there's a barrier and we feel that tension. And it is not lessened or decreased when we follow Christ. It is heightened. The tension is heightened for Christians because we know what ought to be more than anyone else. And more than that, we know what will be. We have been promised glorious things. But it is not yet. And we feel that tension. We don't like it, though. But God, in His gracious wisdom and His brilliance, He knows that the creation, ever since the creation of the world until the new creation, there's this tension, just like it keeps us engaged in the story, the tension keeps us engaged with Him. The tension creates a longing. It it deepens and it builds our longing for, for the answer to the question, for the resolution of the conflict, for the relief of that tension. We look to Him for it over and over again until our faith becomes sight. And in the midst, while our faith is there, and we don't yet see it all fully and clearly, there we feel the tension. And the question is not for the Christian, what will happen? We know. We know we get our happily ever after. But the question is when? When will it be? How much longer, Lord? And with every passing day, there seems to be that the tension is tightening like the string on the bow. It's being stretched further and further and further And we want relief. The Thessalonians were no strangers to this. They were suffering persecution. And they, just like we would, they wanted out. They wanted the persecution to end. They were longing for relief. They were waiting for it and maybe even despairing that it would ever come because they were being taught a false doctrine that Jesus had already come and that there would be no final judgment, no justice, no relief in the end. This is basically as good as it gets. Make do with what you have. But Paul writes to the Thessalonians in these two letters to encouragingly remind them that Jesus has not yet come. Oh, but He will. And when He comes, He will bring relief. He will bring relief for their tension, but their tension was not simply that they were being maybe thrown into prison or fined or they were being mocked and made fun of, or even that they were being beaten and killed, and they wanted that to end, though that's true, they did, I'm sure. But the tension was also, and more so, that they had been 
Ever since the creation of the New Testament church in Thessalonica, they had been receiving this gospel promise. It says at the end of verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians 1, because our testimony to you was believed. They believed the testimony about Jesus. They had heard it proclaimed and they received it with faith. This testimony that Jesus is a gracious Savior, that He is the sovereign Lord and King, and that He is the judge who is worth loving and trusting and worshiping and living for and suffering for and dying for. They believed it. But their faith was not yet made sight. And so they felt the tension. They were living for the glory of Jesus without seeing the fullness of that glory on display. They were believing in the good news about Jesus, and yet they hadn't experienced the fullness of that good news. Does that sound familiar to you? That's, that's what's true for us. None of us have had ever even one day where we've experienced only good. And none of us have experienced the fullness of the good news that has been promised to us in Jesus. And it seems to make it all the harder because the tension is all the greater when the greatness of the good news, when we see how glorious and how wonderful it is, and yet compared to what we actually experience. We feel the tension. What we want, what we need, what ought to be, what is promised us, and yet what is. And so Paul writes in verses 5 through 7 here, <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 7a, the first part, to promise relief. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Uh, Pastor Nathan excellently told us last week that this evidence that proves that God is a righteous judge in His judgment here is their suffering persecution for the kingdom. Because you're suffering for Jesus, that is, that proves that God is a righteous judge when he considers you worthy of the kingdom for which you are also suffering. Since indeed, verse 6, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. God is here through Paul promising relief. This relief comes in two sides of judgment. It's in one word, judgment, but in two sides. First, there's the judgment of God's enemies, but there's also the judgment of His saints. The word judgment here, though, does not mean the execution of or carrying out of the judgment, but rather that the, that the, the sentence, or rather first the verdict has been reached and the sentence has been set. He's already declared who is innocent and who is guilty. And so the verdict, the judgment for His saints, for those who are afflicted, is that they are worthy of the kingdom, that they will get the justice of relief. Verse 7 to grant relief to you who are afflicted. And the judgment of those who are doing the afflicting is that they will get the justice of punishment. Now, seeing it that way, I think it's kind of easy to see that their, why their punishment is repayment, why it's a matter of justice. Verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. This is repayment. This is what you get for what you've been doing. This is what you've earned. This is repayment, and it is a matter of justice. It's fairly easy to see, I think, but it's harder to see that granting relief is a matter of justice. But it is. Verse 6, when he says, indeed God considers it just, there are two infinitive phrases after this. To repay with affliction, number one, and two, God considers it just to grant relief. It's a matter of justice. We say, well, I can see how it's a matter of mercy. 
It's a matter of grace and kindness from God, generosity, but why is it a matter of justice? And it goes even further when he says God considers it just to repay with affliction. That word repay also governs the next phrase. There's no word in the Greek for grant, to grant relief. It's to repay them relief. It's repayment for those who have suffered, his people, his saints, that they get relief. God says, if I don't give you that, it's a matter of injustice. That's harder for us to grasp, though, because we, we say, I mean, all that God gives us is mercy, right? Right. He's a God of grace to us, right? Right. So he, he doesn't owe us anything. There's no obligation to us, right? Wrong. He is obligated to give every one of his people relief. It is a moral obligation that God is under because he has put himself in that obligation. That's what a covenant is. He has made a covenant commitment saying, I promise to you, my faithfulness is on the line. My very character, my own name, my glory is wrapped up with me giving you the relief of grace that I promised. And so in this, he's not saying that, well, it's a, it's a mere duty for me. I don't, I don't really care about doing it. I just have to. I'm obligated. No, he, he loves us. And he delights to. He's just adding this sense of duty to it so that we would see that it is a sure thing. He says, indeed, God considers it just to grant relief to us. This is what he promises. He promises it through Jesus Christ that he will bring relief. But what does that relief look like? It is promised and it is guaranteed for sure upon the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Christ. The rest of verses 7 through 9 tell us what that relief looks like in the first part. He considers it just to grant relief to you as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is where you get relief from injustice. When God's enemies are afflicted. When he comes, verse 7 says, when he is revealed. There's something about Jesus now that is veiled that we, that no one sees perfectly, clearly. But one day all will see. All will see that he is indeed the gracious Savior, the sovereign Lord and the just judge of all the universe. And he will be revealed from heaven. Heaven is the place where heaven looks over all of humanity and sees with perfect omniscience. He comes with perfect power and sovereignty and authority and holiness. Jesus will come with all of that when he comes to bring justice. He will show himself, reveal himself to be who he says he is, who he promises that he is. And first, what does he promise? He promises justice. But the tension lies in the fact that it has not yet been delivered. We are not yet experiencing the fullness of justice. This is what Nathan talked about last week. And that's that tension there. God, I, I know that there should be justice. I, I want it. I'm, I'm working for it, praying for it, longing for it. You have promised it, and yet it isn't here. Where is this justice promised? In the gospel itself. The gospel, you may say, though, is good news. And justice against God's enemies doesn't seem like good news. But indeed it is. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is talking about judgment. And how both the the Jews and the Gentiles will be judged, either with the law or apart from the law, from their own conscience. And in chapter 2, verse 16, 
Paul says, on that day, the day when Jesus returns, when he is revealed, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. According to the gospel, according to the good news, there will be justice. He will bring it. Or listen to the prophecies made about Jesus. Isaiah 42 Prophecy about the Messiah, the Christ, the servant of the Lord. He says in Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The end of verse 3 says, He will faithfully bring forth justice. And verse 4 says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. In the coastlands, that is, the people, the nations of, of the Gentiles far away from Jerusalem, they wait for His law. They wait for His justice to come. This is what He's promised in the Gospel. Isaiah 42 is picked up in Matthew 12 as applied, applying directly to Jesus. You can all look all throughout the Old Testament and the New and you find this similar language. But I love it in the book of Revelation. You find it in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and 11 and 16 and 18 and 19 where the people of God, they're either crying out to Him, saying, would you please, how much longer, God, would you please send the justice that you have promised? Or, they're praising Him, looking into the future, praising Him for what He's already done in the future of bringing that justice, saying, you have brought vengeance. Hallelujah. Praise your name. Because they see it as good news. It's part of the gospel itself. That there will be relief from injustice. One day, God will bring justice. Well, you say, well, but isn't there justice now? Yes, in part, imperfectly. But too often people evade justice. They manipulate, they bribe and blackmail, they threaten. They squirm their way out of it. And it's often that justice is denied. And it is twisted and turned upside down, but one day will not be so. When Jesus is revealed, when the Savior, who is also the judge of the secrets of men's hearts, comes, on that day, there will be full and perfect justice. And there will be no evading it, no denying it, no twisting it. Everything will be made as it ought to be. There will be a perfect justice. This justice that is promised, it was promised to Thessalonians as it is to us. They believed it. They prayed for it and pursued it and worked for it as is right. Paul doesn't rebuke them for it. That's, that, that's what's good that they desire this. They feel the tension and they long for justice to be. And we can even pursue it now knowing that the fullness of it will not be until that day when Jesus is revealed. Perhaps though for you, the problem is you don't feel the great tension between what ought to be, what will be, and what is in the sense of justice. The tension of injustice doesn't overwhelm you right now. Maybe you get a little bit uncomfortable when people talk about Justice and God's judgment in the end. When you read passages like this, verses 7 through 9, that God, that the Lord Jesus will come with mighty angels in flaming fire. He will inflict vengeance, that He will make them to suffer punishment of eternal destruction. And it unnerves you. Maybe it even embarrasses you. Maybe it causes you to say, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really like that language. There are people who reject it outright. And there are many, even Christians, who squirm under those words and they wonder, is it really justice? Will God, will God really do that? Is that, 
It seems so extreme. Is it really going to bring relief? Listen to what one theologian says about God's justice and judgment when he comes. He says that if you were to believe anything about Scripture, believe this, that those who stubbornly refuse to submit to the gospel and to love and obey Jesus Christ, if they refuse this, they will incur at the last advent, that's the second coming of Jesus, an infinite and irreparable loss. It will be an infinite and irreparable loss. They pass into a night on which no morning dawns. Hopelessness forever. Does that seem severe? If by severe we mean intense and overwhelming and unbearable, then it is. If by severe we mean beyond the bounds of justice, it is not. And often when we balk at this idea of God's justice and in, in, in bringing vengeance on His enemies, it's because we lack knowledge. We lack knowledge of the Bible, of how much it talks about God's judgment. We go back to those places that give us comfort and, and that, that seem to speak nice and comforting words to us. But if we know all of the Bible, we will see that it is replete, full of language and imagery and promises and warnings of fiery judgment, both in the Old Testament and the New. Maybe we lack a knowledge of God, of His own character, of what it means that He will bring justice. And he will bring vengeance. Maybe we lack a knowledge of history and of the world as a whole, knowing that there are people who are, there are Christians, our brothers and sisters, who have been and are being persecuted in absolutely horrendous ways. And so we feel uncomfortable about judgment because we lack that knowledge. Maybe it's we lack experience. It's, it was, it's been said that maybe the people who are pushing against this idea of God's vengeance against persecutors, those who push against it aren't the ones being persecuted. They're not the ones experiencing intense persecution. When your loved one, your child, or your spouse, or your parent is tortured and murdered in front of you, you probably have less of an emotional uncomfortability with God's justice. Sometimes it's a lack of experience. But maybe one of the greatest is we often lack humble faith. We think we know better. We try to judge God in His Word and say, I don't know if that's just, God. I don't know if that's best. And it's in our arrogance that we seek to correct God. We need to have humble faith, trusting that He is always in the right. Whatever God ordains, whatever He promises, whatever He does is holy because it comes from Him. And He is holy. Maybe it would help us to understand that there is a horizontal justice that's going on here. They are the enemies of God's people. And He's coming to bring vengeance on them. He subdues them so they no longer are able to inflict persecution on His people. But He also punishes them so as to vindicate His people, to say, you've always been in the right, but you, you've always been in the wrong. See, He loves His people. And when you love someone, you hate that which seeks to destroy it. But sometimes we stop there, and so we don't get a full picture of the justice of God's vengeance. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, And He will grant relief to you when? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. What will He do when He comes? When He is revealed, He will come inflicting vengeance and making them to suffer punishment of eternal destruction. 
He's just saying what will happen. When he comes, this is what he will be doing. But it doesn't actually tell us the ultimate purpose for why he comes. We find that in verse 10. When he comes on that day to do what? What's his purpose? To be glorified in his saints. He comes, you see, not just to bring judgment or justice, because that's kind of a means in part to bring relief to his people. But even that bringing judgment is not the end, and even bringing relief to his people is not the end goal for why he's coming. He comes. The purpose, the ultimate reason and purpose for why Jesus is coming again is to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. He's coming to bring glory to his name. We often maybe balk at or feel uncomfortable with the idea of judgment, maybe most supremely because we lack God-centeredness. We look at ourselves and we know what we would feel. We look at other people and we think about compassion about this, but we don't see it that this is not just the Thessalonians' enemies or our enemies or the church's enemies. These are God's enemies. This is about vertical justice even more than horizontal justice. Look at verse 8 says, He comes in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on who? On those who do not know God. On those who do not know God. It's about Him. Ultimately, it's about His honor, His glory. Now, don't read here when it says they don't know God as it's being some kind of innocent ignorance, as though they, well, I just didn't know. This is a phrase used throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, to refer to those who willfully reject Him. For those who refuse to acknowledge Him. They've heard it, they've seen it, and they say they suppress the truth, Paul says, by their unrighteousness. And they exchange the truth about God for a lie so that they may serve and worship idols and other created things. That's what this means. And those same ones do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, which seems to be an odd phrase. How do you obey the gospel? Isn't it just good news? It's a message. Well, when somebody gives you a message, give you good news or any kind of news, how do you obey it but by receiving it, believing it, and responding accordingly? In Isaiah 66, verse 4, God says that He's coming to bring judgment because He says, I called out to them and they didn't listen. It's not just that they sinned, but then I called to them and said, Turn to me. And they said, No. They refused. They rebelled again and again and did what I did not delight in. See, the gospel is a message, but it's also a command. It's not just, hey, here's some news, take it or leave it. It's, here's some news, you ought to believe it or else. Because you see, it's a message, it's a command, and it is a warning. It is a promise that the Savior is also the judge. And on that day, according to this gospel, He will judge the secrets of men's hearts by Christ Jesus. Their sin, then, is in refusing to acknowledge Him. They see it. They see Him. But they reject Him. And they, their sin is purposeful. It's a kind of intentional, willful rejection of God. And it's personal. They don't want Him. It comes from their heart. This is what they prefer over Him. They on purpose exchange the truth for a lie that they may serve and worship other things. Their sin is not only purposeful and personal, it's persistent. 
Because how many times in a given day has God given them grace? Common grace that is so clear and abundant and evident to them that they are without excuse. God has made it clear to them. And how many times have they seen through the people of God something of the image of Christ being formed in us? And how many times have they maybe heard this gospel message and they refuse to obey it? Persistently so. But if God is going to be a just judge, then His judgment must match the sin. So His judgment is also purposeful, personal, and persistent. It is purposeful because it is calculated. It is measured and meted out such that no one will get more or less than exactly what they deserve. God is just, and His judgment will be righteous. It's also personal. It's personal because He does not just send someone else to do it. It's not because it's not just that they violated some law that he doesn't care about. They violate him. They dishonor him. So he comes. Look at verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now that last phrase where it says away from the presence of the Lord. It's a Greek word, apa. It's a preposition that can either be translated as away from, as the sense that the punishment they get is that they're shut out from God's glorious presence and all the blessing and intimacy. And that is theologically true. But I think that in context, the other alternative reading is better. That it could be stated as that this is the punishment that actually comes from the presence of God. It comes out from Him. When He shows up, that's where judgment comes from. See, in chapter 2, verse 8, He speaks in a similar way about the man of lawlessness. Jesus will kill them with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. And the language from this verse is found in Isaiah. And it's a similar message that from God's very presence pours out His wrath. It's personal. His judgment is purposeful. It's personal, but it's also persistent. Again, verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. It's eternal. It's everlasting. There will be no end. They enter into a night on which no morning dawns. And it's destruction. Don't read in that word destruction that they will simply be annihilated and it cease to exist. That's not the point of that word. The word here has to do with suffering. They don't, you don't suffer when you cease to exist, right? But they will be suffering eternally this punishment that is destroying them. One commentator says that this word carries at least part of this idea that it is the constant loss the perpetual and persistent loss of everything that makes life worth living. They will have none of it. And it's dead. Only their guilt, their shame, and the punishment of God. And it will last forever. And in all of this, God is vindicating His own name. And in all of this, He is rescuing His name from the muck and the mire that people have put it under through millennia. Millions and billions of people finally will see His law upheld when He is revealed. And His glory will shine forth in His vengeance. But what is made clear in the New Testament, and even in the Old, is that while God gets glory in His vengeance, He has ordained that He will get even more glory in His mercy. We see in verse 10, that when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed, He says that I'm coming not ultimately to bring vengeance, not ultimately even to bring relief. I'm ultimately coming to be glorified 
in my saints. So that they will stand with a joyful amazement, being in awe and marveling at all that I am and all that I've given to them. So the glory of God's vengeance is like the backdrop for all the multicolored beauty of the glory of His grace for His people. We find in verse 10 then that there is more relief even given. It's not the relief from injustice, but it's the relief from dishonor. Not dishonor for His people, but it's relief from Jesus being dishonored because He will be glorified. And that's the tension. Paul never rebukes them here by saying, the ultimate end is the glorification of Jesus. That's not a rebuke to them because that's what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to be glorified. After all, they were saying, I refuse to give glory to Caesar even if it costs me my life because Jesus and Jesus alone deserves the glory. They're living to worship Jesus, to glorify Him. That's what they want. And He says, yes. And what you want, it will come about. The tension then you see is that they felt, I'm sure keenly every day, was that Jesus deserves glory. But he's not getting it. Glory for Jesus is deserved, but it's not yet given. Oh, it is given by some, by us, right? But never fully, never perfectly by anyone. Jesus is, can be, should has been and will be glorified until He comes. It's not like we have to wait until He comes before He gets any glory, until we honor Him. But it's only when He returns will He get the fullness of that glory. Only when He comes again. He deserves it. His people desire it. We believe it. They were living and suffering for it. But yet, they felt a tension of, I'm trying to glorify Jesus and they don't see it. Instead, they mock me and they beat me for it. Jesus, why don't they see you as glorious? That's what ought to be. It's what you've promised will be, but you don't yet experience it. That's the mark of a true Christian, isn't it? That you desire for Jesus to be glorified in your life. Don't you want that more than anything else? As long as you are glorified, Jesus, in me, with me giving you glory and honor, that's a life worth living. But alas, His glory is obscured. It's limited. Our efforts because we're sinners and the results because we are creatures and we live in a fallen world, Jesus is not seen as glorious. And even when they do see it, they ignore it or they reject it or they even hate it. But it will not always be so. One day, one day, every knee shall bow. One day, every tongue will confess and give all glory to God. Not everybody willingly and joyfully. By the sheer magnitude of His presence, they will drop to their knees. And they will say, indeed, you are Lord. They won't love Him for it. They won't enjoy Him. But He will get glory. And yet we, His people, will gladly marvel at Him on that day. We will praise His name. But we do it now. But it won't be in fullness and perfection until He comes again. Why is that? Because when He comes, all will see Him as He is. It'll be a perfect and full unveiling. We will see how He subdues and punishes His enemies with vengeance, bringing justice, both horizontal and vertical. And with our faith finally and perfectly made sight, we will see that our faith in Him was never misplaced. 
And when He comes, we will finally experience the fullness of the testimony of the gospel that we believed. All the goodness will be felt and seen and experienced in full. And because of this, in light of this, we will marvel at Him. We will marvel. We will stand amazed. Have you had an experience where you... You, maybe you are reading His Word or you're, you're singing His praises or you're, you're, you're experiencing some answer to prayer and you just say, God, you are amazing. And you marvel at Him. I tell you, it will pair, pale in comparison to what will be on that day. No words cannot express the marvelous, wonderful glory that we will give Him on that day. And the tension we feel now only increases our longing to give it to Him most fully. We will on that day shout His praises. We will rejoice in His wisdom because we will see it and just... We will drop to our knees. Our mouths will be agape. And we will say, how manifold is His wisdom. He has worked everything out so beautifully, so perfectly. We will stand in all of His power because we don't know the half of it. We will be grateful for His goodness. We will admire His patience. He has endured for millennia now how many billions of people mocking Him. And He says, I can wait. I can wait. And that day we will rest in His perfect justice. We will delight in His gracious love. We will wonder at His mercy. And more and more and more we will marvel. We will see on that day when He comes, when we see Him as He's revealed, we will see... Most clearly what we've been straining to see through the dust and haze of this broken and fallen world. All all this whole life and all of the history of the church and the history of the world. We've been longing to see what we will see on that day. The infinite worthiness and gloriousness and marvelousness of Jesus. Who is the sovereign and gracious Savior, Lord, King and Judge. And in all of this glorifying Him, in all of this marveling at Him we will get even more relief. That's the apex. This is the pinnacle. The highest point of our relief. The Thessalonians Christians, remember, were living in this tension. They were suffering for His glory. The problem was that it didn't seem to be truly effective. His glory was still being obscured. When they preached the message and they lived a life that showed about the glory of Jesus, they didn't say, oh, wow, thank you for that. They persecuted them. And this tension demands relief. But the relief will only be full and perfect when He comes. And when He comes, it won't just be in giving justice. The relief will be full, not just when they, the Thessalonians, or we Christians are vindicated, but when Jesus is vindicated. When He is honored. When He is proved to be the righteous King, the just Judge, and the gracious Savior. Then and only then will He be glorified. And that will give us relief. Do you desire for Jesus to be glorified? Do you want that? Do you want Him to be seen as worthy in your eyes and in your life, through your life? Do you think that in your life you, want, you will live for His glory and work for it and suffer for it so that Jesus will be glorified in us, knowing that all the while in this life there will be a tension that not everyone will see it? Then know this. You will never have rest. You will never be satisfied. You will never have relief until He comes. 
There will always be a, a burning in you, a yearning for Jesus. You're not yet fully glorified. And that's what I want most of all. But in that day when our faith in his gloriousness becomes sight, when he comes executing his vengeance against his enemies, when he comes revealing himself to be all that we have hoped him to be, all that he's promised to be in the gospel, then on that day, the tension of our longing for him to be fully glorified will be revealed, will be relieved. But here's the thing. In that relief, we will see him and then we will marvel him all the more. And when we marvel at him and give him glory for it, we will get only more relief, which will then will turn us into want to glorify him all the more. Do you see the ever, the never ending cycle of praise? It will never end. But it must start. It will never end, but it should start today. We need to seek to glorify Him now. Marvel at Him now. Live for Him, suffer for Him now to show that He is worthy now. Our faith will one day be turned to sight. But now He is glorified as we live by faith, as we walk by faith. So by faith, wait for Him. Wait for His coming with patience. He's not delayed. He's coming and it will be perfectly on time. And when, when He comes, we will see it and say, You're right. This was perfect. You didn't mess up at all. I wouldn't have changed a thing. So wait for Him patiently. By faith, humble yourself before Him. Because the simple truth is, He's not coming to glorify us. He, we are not the center. He is. And that's where the fullness of our joy rests anyway. So rejoice. Rejoice that He's coming not just to glorify Himself apart from us. He could say, He could have done this. I'm going to come and glorify my name in, my, in vengeance upon all people. But He didn't. He says, I'm going to send my Son who will be not only judge but also Savior. And by grace, by grace, there will be some who will not turn and run weeping in fear when He comes. But there are some, like us, I pray, that we will marvel at Him when He comes. So rejoice in Him now for that promise. This will be. The question is not if, it's when. And the answer is when the Lord Jesus returns. But maybe the question this morning you should be asking yourself is, when He comes, how will I fare? Will I marvel at Him? Or will I run from him to no avail? The Holy One is coming, and we are all sinners. So how will, it, how will it go for you? The answer comes down to, do you know God, and are you obeying his gospel? He says, he will be marveled at, in verse 10, among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Do you believe the testimony? Do you believe the gospel truth about Jesus? That determines what will happen on that last day. So this morning, if you're not yet trusting in this gospel, maybe you don't even know what the fullness of what that means. When others come up to partake of communion, stay where you are, please. And don't come up. But instead pray. Ask the Lord to give you insight, to make it clear to you what this gospel is. And then come and talk to me or another pastor or another Christian around you, or you about it. Or you can put it on a connection card and drop it off in those offering boxes. It would be our genuine pleasure to talk with you more about this. And if you do know God, 
You, you haven't refused to acknowledge what he has, how he has revealed himself in his word. And you are obeying the gospel by embracing all that it says about Jesus, that he is your hope. And you long for him to return. And you've had your faith in Christ, in this gospel testimony. You've had your faith affirmed by other Christians in baptism in a local church and in just a moment. You can exit to your left and come up to the front to one of these four tables. Grab the communion elements with the gluten-free being to the far left here. And go back to your seat to the right. You, 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 and you look at these elements that remind you that of the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus that He gave up for sinners. Because He who is judge is now your Savior. And rejoice. And marvel at Him. And glorify Him. And ask Him to increase your longing for Him to come. And when you are ready for those who should come, please do.